Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi. Can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for, and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Kate Thompson is an award-winning journalist, ghostwriter, and novelist who has spent the past two decades in the UK mass market and book publishing industry. She is the author of 12 fiction and nonfiction titles, and her debut novel, Secrets of the Singer Girls, was a Sunday Times bestseller when it launched in 2015. Her latest novel, The Little Wartime Library, is based on a remarkable true story and will be available in the U.S. in February. Here is my conversation with Kate. Hello, Kate. Thanks for being with me today. Oh, you're so welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm chuffed. <laughs> That's a very British word, isn't it? I'm chuffed. <laughs> oh, I was waiting to use it. I actually interviewed Freya. <laughs> I I yes, yes. I only used it with you. And only because Freya Sampson, I interviewed her last season. Oh, did you? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, I don't oh. know her, but I, I've been in touch with her on, on social media. Yeah, her book's done so well, hasn't it? I know. Fantastic. I just saw the other day that it was a USA Today bestseller. Right. So I was so yeah. thrilled. Loved that book. But she gave me permission to attempt to use the word. So that was my first official try. And I feel really oh, excited right. about it. Yeah. I'm, well, you could always use another one. It's a bit, I feel like it's a bit more older, of an older generation. You always say, well, I'm thrilled. I'm absolutely thrilled. Oh, okay. That's a more, you know, that's another um, English kind of, yes, equivalent of I'm thrilled. Throw that well, one in. And I feel like so much is in the delivery, right? Like yes. I, I need to, I think I need to sit up a little straighter and before I say it and then it'll really, I'll sell it. I'll sell it. <laughs> then you're right. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I gave you that one. It's funny, all the people I find have written books about books. We yes. sort of tend to gravitate towards one another. So I'm in touch with lovely Madeline Martin, um, yes. the last bookshop in London and Freya who wrote that fabulous book, The Last Library. There are, oh, and I don't know if you've ever spoken to Janet uh, Skellion Charles, who wrote The Paris Library, another oh. incredible book. Oh, you must be. Okay. Um, I'll put her on my list. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> You're right. It does kind of, I think people who write books about books do have a little bit of a common thread about them, right? There's Absolutely. something about that appreciation and loving books enough to write about them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, you know, writing books about books from a writer's perspective, it's just an absolute joy because you're writing about something you know, you know, and I, I grew up in libraries and, you know, it's been like the backdrop of my life. So, to and it's a comfortable, warm, nostalgic place to be. So yes. this has been my, by far my most favourite book to write, the most sort of like slipping into a warm bath, you know. It's, 
because it's I, I'm surrounded by the image and the memories and the stories of books and libraries. Yes. What, what more magical doorway can you open to the past than that? Oh, that gives me goosebumps. What a beautifully put sentiment. <laughs> I love it. That was... Well, I think we can just stop there. Let's okay, just okay. Yeah, we're done. This is fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to go weep. And uh, see you all later. Great, great. Okay, I'll do a good job. No, you're so right, though. It's just, a, it's a beautiful experience. And for those of us who love books in not only their, the stories inside them, but the physical form of them and just all that they represent, you're right. To write about that is just oh, yeah. so oh, exciting. Sure. Oh, I love it. So you were saying this was your favorite one to write. This is yeah. uh, liter- the Little Wartime Library is the book we're talking about today. That's right. And it's your seventh book, correct? It's my seventh novel. Yes. I've novel. written okay. as well, but yeah, it's okay. my seventh, my seventh novel. And I said it was easier, but it was also in some ways challenging because when I started writing it, we all went into lockdown, you know, straight yes. away. In the past, I've always tried to go out and seek what historians would call primary sources, sit down mm-hmm. with people. I've always set my books during the Second World War or in the early part of the 20th century. And I've always been mindful where there are still people that can remember in the war to go out and interview them and said, that's what I've done for the last sort of five years. All my previous novels set in the East End of London, okay. I've, gone, I've worn out a lot of shoe leather, running around and interviewing people and gathering those stories from very, very elderly women and men who can still remember the war years. But, of course, as soon as lockdown happened, I thought, ah, what am I going to do this time? Because the book is still set in, in East London, in Bethnal Green. Yes. In what I believe to be the only library built over the tracks of an underground station. Mm. So when the Blitz broke out and the library was bombed, this very pioneering librarian and his deputy recognised that if people can't come to the books, we must take books to the people. And so they took 4,000 volumes and 78 feet below ground and they opened this magical wood-panelled little library over the boarded-up tracks of the westbound tunnel of the central line in Bethnal Green, which has usually got tube trains rattling through it. Right. So during the war, it was, wasn't was actually a working station at that point. So okay. it had been transformed into an underground shelter. And one of the things I love most about this is that when people think of people sleeping underground during the Blitz... They have this image of people sleeping in this sort of amorphous head-to-toe along dirty underground platforms and all bundled up and it being very cold and dark and dirty and dangerous. But in Bethel Green is a bit of an anomaly because it wasn't a working station. It became this thriving subterranean community. And as you know, you've read the book, there was the theatre and the library and the cafe and it was very a crash, you know, so women could go out to work. So... Really modern facilities, pre-welfare state. So for me, even more amazing. So going back to this, yeah, I thought, well, okay, I, I need to go and interview people that can remember that, that, that shelter. Yeah. But that's going to be even harder because I can't go anywhere. And most elderly people that I know don't aren't on Zoom and so forth. Right. So I set myself the goal of interviewing um, 100 librarians instead. So I thought, well, okay, librarians can all be interviewed on Zoom. And so that's... <laughs> Well, I started out thinking, oh, just to, to quantify, I did 100 librarians because Bethnal Green Library is 100 years old this year. And I thought, yes. well, better to tell the story of librarians and li- of libraries than librarians themselves. Right. And so that's how it began, really. And, and um, I started off there and I spent most of lockdown 
with librarians, which was a great way to spend the lockdown as far as I was concerned. I heard some incredible stories uh, and I could have written this book without them, truly. That is fantastic. It seems like you really lean toward interviews in your research because now is that, do you think, because you have a background in journalism, correct? Is that how you got started? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a journalist by trade. You know, I, I never set out to be an author or a mm. novelist. I didn't do particularly well in school. I came out with very bad. We do GCSEs over here. Yeah. And so the thought of writing a book just seemed way too big. I thought that's what people that are degree educated do. I, I could never write a book. But actually through becoming a journalist and going out and interviewing people and finding stories and understanding that true life is always more extraordinary than anything you could make up, Yes, I, I feel like I'm in my happy place when I'm sitting with somebody listening, particularly somebody from the war years, and you listen to that unfiltered gush of social history that comes out. And that's where I'm happiest, you know, because you go out and you sit with somebody and you listen and you listen to the, the language and the, the body language and the nuance of the language and pictures on their wall. And you build pictures of people's lives, ordinary people's lives. And that's where I'm I'm really happy I'm far happier actually sometimes than writing because, you know, it's a great distraction technique research. <laughs> so, you know. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. The slog so, of writing. Yeah. It's a little yeah. bit easier think, to, yeah. Yeah. And I guess maybe it's insecurity as well because, you know, I don't feel like I'm a novelist. Mm. I don't know who does, but I, there's no training for it. So in some ways, if I can back it up with loads of solid research and attention to detail, I feel like, and also it's very important to me to only include events within my novels that actually happened. So, you know, the, the underground library was there. The people that I mentioned in the book, a lot of the characters are real characters, like Mrs. Chumley, who was the formidable air raid shelter um, uh, lady. She yes. was a real person. You know, all these people existed. You know, I had a fantastic premise for a book. I, I The book was already illustrated with a wonderful cast of real life characters. Yes. I just to put it together, you know? So, mm-hmm. and you find these things by talking to people and going out, you know, the stories are already there, that the stories are everywhere, you know? So that's for me, I feel like a, a story hunter gatherer. <laughs> oh, I love that. A star- you're a story collector. Listening is a lost art. And oh, so- the idea that you can mine for that sort of wisdom and exactly what you were saying, paying attention to someone's body and how they're speaking about things. And people just have the richest stories. We do. We all have a story. We all have Mm -hmm. a book. And it's so funny you say that. Uh, I interviewed recently Heather Morris, who I'm sure you've heard of, who wrote The Tattooist of Auschwitz for a newspaper article. And we were talking about this very same thing. And she said, it's not just listening as a lost art, active listening, where you're listening to somebody and you're not waiting to tell them your take on it. Yes. You're just listening with a with open ears and open heart and a sort of blank mind, listening to everything they have to tell you because and accepting that that especially the older generation, you know, those who can remember the years, we none of us have lived in a vacuum. We all have rich lives, particularly the older generation. Mm-hmm. And I always make this point with the, with the people I have interviewed over the years, particularly the elder generation, is what you know, the, the, it taps into the issue of loneliness and why it is. I don't know what it's like in America, but maybe it's more so here that as we age, I think because we 
we sort of worship at the temple of youth. We see grey hair and wrinkles and we stop listening. We cease to see a valid person with stories and experiences. Yes. And yet that generation of the lifeblood of our country. And this one wonderful lady that I interviewed, a real old East Ender, Eileen, said to me, she said, you know, Kate, when you're 80, you're invisible. When you're 90, you might as well be dead. She said, I might have snow on the roof, but I'm not, you know, I'm not old. I've still got stories <laughs> to tell. And she's so right, I think. You know, we loneliness is a real issue and we should be listening to the to the stories and experiences of that generation. Yes. It couldn't be more accurate because you see how we do worship at the temple of youth. You're exactly right. And then this sort of arc of time, but even in the middle place of life where I am, I have so much more perspective. So imagining, you know, 20 years on, 40 years on, Lord willing, that that could be something to offer. But you're right. We are, our cultures are not set up well to appreciate and to learn from that wisdom. So I'm so glad. They have so much, I think, women and men of that generation that can inform us in the 21st century. You know, they lived through war, the war, yes. they, you know, and pandemics. And they, you know, they know about recycling and they know about resilience and they know about, you know, communities and solidarity. Yes. You know, there's nothing new. We just need to look back and listen to what they've experienced and how they coped with it, particularly resilience, I think to be able to to give us that armor ourselves as 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 the next sort of generation coming up. So yeah, I think that's going back to your original point. That's why I do make the effort to go out and interview people because I love it. And you know, I'm very happy sitting on somebody's front room with a cup of tea and a yes. cake and listening to the stories of the war years because it's you know, you'll always come away with something interesting. I'm always surprised, you know, and, and always interested to hear and always come away with something that I never knew before. And it all finds its way into my novels, even if it's just a funny little saying or a yes. turn of phrase, you know, it all works its way out. I was amazed. You know, it's funny you say that because I highlighted something about, will the Ravens leave the tower when I'm gone? But I don't understand that. I missed that one. So can okay, you explain that, that to me? Yeah, no, I'll explain that. I think, like, yeah, you, why would you understand that? There's a, there's a legend or a myth, I don't know what you could call it, that at the Tower of London, the minute, the last, because it's full of black ravens, they're kind okay. of like iconic sort of cultural symbols of the Tower of London. And the saying goes that if one leaves, London will fall. It's because there's always smothered in black ravens. So that okay. was kind of my thing, like if Ruby left London with the Tower, with the <laughs> last raven leaving the Tower of London. Okay, that makes sense. So now I hope that makes sense. It does, thank you. It was one, I definitely, I did, I highlighted it and thought, I have no idea what we're talking about here. <laughs> but that's one of those particular sort of things that lends a sense of yeah. place to it. Yeah, but I love that. And to... To your point, what you were saying about, you know, enjoying the interviews and really mining for stories with Mm. these people, it Mm. comes through in your book. Oh, please. It's it's so, it's very fine in in terms of the way you write it. I feel like you weave it very well. And I learned so much. And I'm always amazed too, because I do have that sort of assumption that, oh, I've heard most of the stories about World War II. I had no idea that there was a library in a tube station and no. And I also think one of the valuable parts of the book that in addition to the story, which I loved is all of the additional matter that you include the (sighs) notes and the photos and everything in the back was just so informative. And 
I also love that you traveled to see the book that survived from Exeter. And the picture, I was, no, I was dying because I was like, that is a hundred percent. I want to do that now. I have that. Oh, yes. I love to, I love to smell books. I would totally. My husband picked me up from the train. So I live in London and, and yes. this book to reference so people understand what we're talking about. I have been in touch with Exeter Library, which yes. is badly bombed. And Exeter's in the southwest of the country. So a good five hour train ride from London. And oh Exeter Library was, was horrend- horrendously bombed because it was a port city. And all their books were destroyed. You know, a bar one, one book survived. Mm. And, I, and the librarian there told me about it. She said, oh, we've got it down in our stacks. You can come and visit it if you like. I went, can I? So I, so I did. And I went down and she brought it out reverently with her white gloves and she lifted it up and I kind of immersed. And instantly I was just taken back. I could, if I closed my eyes, I could imagine being in that library on the night the bomb dropped and just imagining that, that weird sort of powdery, mildewy, brackish kind of smell from fires and, and imagining how did this book survive? Anyway, and I, I got, and it was wonderful, and I took photographs of it, and it's really, and then I wrote all the way home on the train because it really sort of opened up my imagination. And yes. I got back, and my husband picked me up, and he said, where have you been? I said, oh, I went off, <laughs> I've been five hours on the train to sniff a book. And he just looked at me, he, just, he doesn't get it. He's like, <laughs> he just looked at me like I was absolutely mad. <laughs> Great, honey. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> my husband would say the same. He doesn't really share my affinity no. for all things books which is probably good because otherwise we'd be too just down the yeah, rabbit yeah. hole all together all the time <laughs> I yeah I really appreciated that but I also liked seeing all the other pieces and also reading that three quarters of a million books were destroyed in those bombardments I had no I and it's even I think not only you know, some of the stories we know, but then interviews and more information and reading a book like yours gives more texture to it as well, yeah. where That's how I feel. it fills like it out. Yeah. It's like adding layers because obviously yes. lots of the information, I interviewed a huge amount of people from librarians to history professors and, and a lot of librarians. And you can't pile all of that into your book because then it becomes right. a nonfiction book. And yes, you know, you, you can, <clears throat> I always think you can put too much research into a book. I remember one review I got from a lady, she said, I remember reading it, it said, oh, Kate Thompson has really done her research. And I thought, oh, that's good. And then she followed up with, and doesn't she want us to know? And I thought, oh, <laughs> oh. you know, and actually she had a point. I think I had, I had, you, there's a temptation when you spend hours in a in an archive or interviewing to, to let everybody know what you've been doing and, and yes. pilot. But, but then it becomes very clunky and, and thick and, and the flow goes and so I have to force myself to and my editors as well to strip all that out and just use yes. a very light touch just to sprinkle it across the pages so therefore I use the back of my books as a place to contextualize and for people to go and it's funny you say that because so many people said to me oh I really found that interesting the the, uh, the material at the back to know that it was real and these were real people and this was what reading for victory was like. And yes. you saw this massive democratization of libraries during the Second World War. And librarians became like frontline workers during the war and really agile and creative and nipping around London's cratered streets in mobile libraries and libraries yes. popping up everywhere from troop ships to allotments to uh, underground light, you know, underground tube stations. So 
for me, it's a place to, to pour all that information in. And I figure, you know, by the time you've got to the end of the book, if you've enjoyed the book, you might go on. If you don't, sure. fine, you don't have to read it, but it's there if you want it. I think it's such an addition to the book. It's so oh, valuable. Oh, and good. you write it in a nice style too. I mean, there's just a variety of ways to see and absorb that information. And you're right. I would probably feel the same way because about sharing all the research, right? Because you put the time in, but also you're just amazed by it, right? Yeah. It's like when you find yeah. something interesting and I just want to yeah. tell everyone I've met, did you know this? It. Yeah, that's what I want to say. Like, do you know this? You can, you can go five hours and snip a book or <laughs> did you know libraries were doing this in the Second World War? And I've, I do it as well because I think there are so many refreshingly modern aspects to the yes. field of librarianship during the Second World War that people wouldn't necessarily know. Like, I was really stunned to find that actually, I don't know what it was like in America, but certainly in England, by the time of the Second World War, it wasn't really an established thing, library membership. People tended mm. to have library subscriptions to private libraries, like or Tupney libraries, or people used to go to something called a Boots subscription library. Okay. Libraries were very hallowed institutions, quite quiet and for, intimidating okay. to the average sort of working person. But I think what that really changed during the Second World War, because of the scarcity of books and paper rationing, and a lot of those other subscription libraries, t- you know, shut down. So people mm-hmm. turn to their public library for what well, for solace, for sanctuary, for information. And libraries themselves reacted very fast and became very agile and quick to respond to people's needs. And so we saw, as I've referenced already, this democratization of libraries. So people, you know, library loans soared throughout throughout the country. You know, areas like Manchester exceeded five million. Certain areas of London that didn't even have a library quickly opened one up in reaction to this. Interesting, yes. And so it formed the kind of basis of what, in the post-war years, this how we all became, fell in love with our local libraries and it became part of our high streets and part of our, our daily habits, I suppose, and our rituals to go to libraries. But that only really founded, I think, because of the Second World War, because of the way that they reacted and became they became this ritual and habit during the Second World War. So we, you know, it all began in a way that for in England for the Blitz yeah. really formed the seeds or the foundations of the welfare state. The library came alongside with that. Right. It was part of this whole raft of measures to improve people's lives and not to go back to the evils and the squalor of, of the past, I suppose. So that's one of the things I love most about what I do is the surprises in history, what you learn and suddenly it all adds up and it begins to piece together and you're like, ah, okay, I see now. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think we have a lot to thank librarians and libraries during the Second World War, especially for the way that they reacted and their bravery and their courage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially in the case of Bethnal Green, which definitely stood as a symbol of resistance and continues to do so 100 years on, that, that here was one of the most bombed boroughs in London. Yes. And people underground... 78 feet underground were going to the library and borrowing books and listening to opera and Sadler's Wells Ballet. You know, this was, um, this, this offers up a surprising picture and a valuable picture of life during the war. Yes. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In one of the interviews in the book, you said their grief was sacrificed in the name of morale. And then in the... And note also, then you were talking about how the panic attacks and flashbacks were based on this idea that there was no structure to put in, you know, PTSD wasn't something that was talked about. And there was, and that idea though, of we don't want to damage morale. So will you talk a little bit more about that? I just, I found that. I found that so interesting because in the book, I talk about an event. There were many horrific events that happened during World War II. I mean, there was the Blitz. Yes, you know, of course. The, the, the rocket attacks. But there was one particular event that happened in Bethel Green mm. that, again, is quite unique. It was the biggest loss of civilian life during the Second World War. 173 people were killed in a devastating crush on the steps down to the underground because... I guess you have to bear in mind that this was ostensibly an underground station, but in the in the war years was being used as a subterranean city. Right. So seven, at the height of the blitz, seven thousand people slept down there, and the only access to this subterranean city was a solitary stairway of eighteen steps. So you can imagine the health and safety issues around that. Like now, you would never of see course. such a thing. No, but this was war, you know, and, and people were living through extraordinary times. So on that particular night, the one hundred and seventy three people have been crushed to death, many of them in the space of, of 30 seconds when this pile-up just happened. And so this actually did happen. And I've interviewed many survivors, people that talk about the horror, the abject horror of that night. And I imagine that my protagonist, Ruby, had lost her big sister yes. on the steps down to the underground. And, you know, for many people that I interviewed afterwards, they were forbidden, blanket, outright, from talking about what they had witnessed because had this news fallen into the enemy's hands all these people killed and not even a single enemy bomb dropped, the propaganda would have been immense around from the German perspective. So right. Churchill put the official War Secrets Act over it and everybody, officials told people in the area, you must never breathe a word of this, you must not speak of it. And people did. You know, there, there was this collective sense of guilt that, and a veil of suffering almost that was swept over the East End. And, you know, rescuers' hairs turned grey overnight. People's lives were irre- irretrievably change forever after that night and so they lived the sense of guilt and repressed pain and suffering just built and built and I came to understand by interviewing people many now in their 90s and hundreds people who saw people that have been pulled from the tube and were lying dead on the on the you know children and babies and mothers lying dead on the, on the pavement witnessed this and you know they had their pain that, that what they saw you know, that pain, it never fades, but it festers. And I think all of that, you know, all that suffering, all that, you know, pain and, and horror and never having an outlet, you know, never having the opportunity to share stories, to make sense of what they'd seen, um, no acknowledgement of what we would now call post-traumatic shock or, or right. anything like that. 
builds up. And so you you have this generation that have never been allowed to to grieve or share experiences. And I think I wrote that book actually a lot for them mm. to say, I understand, you know, we understand what you have been through, what the pain that you have been through. I mean, there was just a grievous dereliction of duty on the part of the authorities towards those people that use that underground shelter. And so many families were were lost a loved one throughout the war in Bethel Green. And so it really was about saying, you know, we know what you went through and it, and that you that they're their grief and their suffering was sort of really forgotten in the name of morale, this great mm. beast of a thing that existed during the Second World morale. You know, you think how much governmental time was spent, you know, pursuing how to keep morale up and how can we keep the people from cracking? And it's, yes. it's such a, a, a sort of potent word. It's so loaded, isn't it, with meaning yeah. the word morale. Yes. Well, even the beauty is our duty sort of idea uh, well, and thinking, right? 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 Like, yeah. You're exactly right. There was a whole machine dedicated to that. Oh, and we sure. had it in the States as well, you know, Rosie yeah, the Riveter. So. Yeah. Oh, Rosie the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, beauty is fascinating though, isn't it? You know? It is. Although now I'm thinking, was Rosie American or was that a British one as no, well? I Did I just Rosie, steal it? I think, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think Rosie the Rope was American. You can have her. Phew. You can keep her. She oh, was. okay, good. It's getting a little sweaty right there. It's, it's recorded. Keep it together, Julie. No, no I'm sure. I mean, I could yeah. be wrong. No, sure. you know what? We'll look it up. We, it's But, but again, that idea, we so had wrong. that here as well. Yes, I can picture the Uncle Sam posters and yeah, all, of all, the, of all of the pieces. No, it's very, it's very true, but you're right. This sort of that drive to keep morale up and then but what are you losing when you're painting over all of this very real pain yeah yeah all this grief and suffering mm. and loss it has to find an outlet somewhere yes. it, has, it doesn't simply go away and I don't yes. think the years weaken it I think people bury it deeper but it's still mm-hmm. there you, you you can't lose somebody in the way that a lot of people did during the second world war and not and, and come to terms with it. You yeah. just can't. You know, there was just it, it was suffering on a colossal scale. Yes. What are you supposed to do with that? Just pack it away, put it under the bed and forget about it. So we wanted to explore those themes about morale and, and individual personal loss and grief. And yeah, how much people were expected to forgo in the name of morale and and you know, in the warriors. So I'm I'm glad you picked up on that actually, because that felt for me quite a big theme to pull out. It very much was, and I saw it a lot in Ruby, and I really, I liked the way that you wove that together because it really gives more texture, but so much honesty to it. I mean, this is, your story is so honest, and I think that comes from all the research and the the backstory that you're putting in. Yeah, and I think because so many people I interviewed were so honest with me, mm. you know, people that I have gone out and spoken with. And you have a variety of characters who are experiencing pain and I don't want to give anything away but there was just a very tender moment when Clara finds out a little bit more toward the end and I I really I loved the way that you treated that pain you really had an, a reverence for it and I think it comes it comes through it was it Thank was just you. a very powerful book I think you did a wonderful job with it oh I'm so pleased to hear that. Thank you. I'm really touched that you said that because well, it's lovely to hear things like that. But, you know, you, it's lovely to hear you respecting it in that way because that, that was born, like I say, of all those interviews and, and research. So 
in a sense, you're sharing in the stories of, of a whole generation of people. You are, you did, you did them justice. You can feel just <laughs> your attention to it. So I can't wait for it to come out in the States and for everybody yeah, to yeah. read it. It's Next February. And I, I wonder, I must, you give me an idea. I think I might email my US editor to say, what do you think about the ravens in the tower? <laughs> Shall we keep it in? No. I, what do you think? I mean, it's probably too late. I think the book's gone to press. <laughs> I think you should keep it in though, because I think it, you know, obviously the Anglophiles like me really love learning that, but I think that's, I mean, it's oh, great. Okay. That's something that would have been said. I just, I picked it out as, oh, I don't know what this is referring to, but I feel like, like you said, when you're listening to an interview and you're you know, picking up on parts of speech and how people are saying things. And that includes idioms. So I think having that just, I mean, that's a thing that you say, which I love, which now I'll start saying that. Good. It's (laughs) wonderful because when you hear a phrase that that you have never heard before. Yes. And it's passed into sort of, you know, the history books, nobody uses it. You almost bring it back to life in a way, don't you? Like, yes. As elderly East End Cockney women, and Cockneys are real rich and spirited vocabulary. She said to me, oh, that, she pointed at somebody over, she said, oh, that woman, she talks so much, you know, she's the only person that can go on a holiday and come back with a sunburned tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that, that imagery. It's such a great imagery, isn't it? Oh, so it is. Like that, that you, you just, we've lost that vocabulary for our day-to-day usage. Yes. It's wonderful to bring it back and to hear you say it on the other side of the world, you know? Yeah. That's, lang- that's what a wonderful language is. It leaps out of our mouths and into the mouths of others. Yes. And I think personally that English people do that so well. I have a really good friend who's English and I've picked up so many phrases from her because there's just, there's a play on language. Like Aussies do a lot of the rhyming. I feel like everything rhymes and they're, I mean, none of it makes sense, (laughs) but (laughs) like, I remember our friend saying, oh, we're getting the tin lids. And I was like, what? The kids. I was like, okay, well, those don't make sense at all to me, but things, (laughs) things like that. So I love those. Keep it in and start. Yeah. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Although I do like the idea of you emailing someone at the last minute and setting them into a panic and being like, I want that out. (laughs) <laughs> I spoke to Julie at this library and she told me she should be thanking you. Yes. Here's her email if you'd like to complain. <laughs> oh, I, no, I, think it. It, I think it's too late because it's coming out next February. Yeah. So, well, yeah. people should get in there and order it and I can't wait to see it on our side oh, of the world. So I can't it's, wait. I can't wait. I'm hoping I can come over and publicize it a little bit over there. That would be wonderful. Perfect. I'm available. As you can see, yes, it'll, it's going to be great. I'm, do you like how I interpreted that as an invitation? Yes, I do. For I me? like that. that was oh, great. Okay. Okay, good. Segues. Yes. I took that hint. Don't worry. <laughs> this is perfect. I want to just hear real quick on, so I was saying with the ghostwriting, you started with, did you start with ghostwriting and then you moved into novel writing? Yeah, I did. Okay. I did. Do you still do that? Well, I haven't for a while because I've been so busy with novels right um, my own book but but that was sort of my entry into writing my own books really because like I say I was a journalist and then I became a ghost writer which for those that don't really know is is not writing spooky stories but it's writing other people's stories on their behalf so you are the silent one because your name will never appear on the book you are you write the book and then you retreat back into the shadows so you're the ghost essentially amazing so I did that because I'd had my second son 
and I've been made redundant from my job at a magazine and I wanted something I could do from home and I wanted to be more present and around for my kids. So yeah, I signed up with an agent and started ghostwriting. It seems to be quite the thing for journalists mm. um, to become ghostwriters because I guess because they can write quicker and to deadlines, you know, so you and you can leave your ego at the door. It doesn't matter. You can just write somebody else's book. Right. That was the catalyst for sure for me becoming an author because it gave me a feel of how to write long form narrative. Yes. You know, like essentially how to write the story arc, you know, how to structure it at the beginning, the middle, the end, my characterizations. I, I was really able to play around with that. And I loved it. You know, I, again, I met some incredible characters. This one lady, the first book I, I think it was the first book I, I ghosted, was the memoirs of a lady called Molly Moran, who was a scullery service, a scullery maid in service between the wars. And it was the time Downton Abbey was really popular. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. But And this book went to number one on the Sunday Times bestseller list. And she became the oldest ever number one bestselling author because she was at that point like 96 and she was a ripe character. She loved every moment of her, you know, her moment in the spotlight. She was quite cheeky and naughty and irreverent. And when she was a scullery maid, she was always sneaking out to dances and having oh affairs with the butler. And she was such a flame-haired character, Molly. Oh, yeah. So she, I loved every moment of that. But what writing Molly's book taught me really was that for many women like Molly, who had worked in domestic service and drudgery, you know, she worked you know, seven days a week. They had every other Sunday off. She was paid a pittance. It was much more, you know, that like you see in Downton Abbey, it was much harder than that, I think. Right. Um, but for war was really, for her, it was a springboard out of drudgery because when war came along, she got called into the services. She travelled the world. She had agency and autonomy and she better pay. And she married an officer and she travelled the world. And so this whole world was opened up to her with the commencement of war, Right. And it made me really think, wow, how interesting the effect of war upon women's lives. And that's when I began to think, oh, actually, I'd really like to write my own novel. You know, people with characters like Molly, but I could write this myself, maybe. Right. And that's how it, it's, it sort of went from there. But it was a great training ground being, if anyone's sort of thinking, oh, I'd, I don't know about writing my own novel. I don't know that I've got the confidence for it. I'd suggest maybe writing somebody else's book you know, teaches yeah. you so much about structure and gives you that confidence. It's quite a safe space to explore styles and writing styles and, and get some books under your belt, as it were. So for me, it was a really, it was a catalyst for, for sure for becoming a novelist. That's so, yeah, yeah, that really makes sense. You gave me a heads up, which I appreciated. You actually asked if I had any stereotypes to dispel about librarians. Yes. Okay, so... I don't mind most of them. I find them mostly pretty humorous, but I think, you know, I wouldn't say that there are any I want to dispel because in my experience, every librarian I meet is so different and each one has their strong suit. So when I started working at the district where I work, there's a woman there who trained me. She was Scottish. Her name was Gillian McKee. And she taught me all of the things about libraries. And if you picture a Scottish librarian, literally you are picturing her. I mean, cardigan, brooch, all the things. And what I appreciated about her was her, she valued order. She was very organized. She was so passionate about the library having structure. And I have different priorities for our library, but I definitely pick some of that up. So I think every librarian has something valuable that they 
give. So even the the cardigan wearing, you know, taskmaster, yeah. very sort of, you know, wanting quiet or things like that. Yeah. I still think there's there's value there. Nice. So I kind of yeah, mm-hmm. I think I appreciate all the different types. And even within, you know, my kind of we have eight librarians that I'm working within the district and all of us just have a different yeah. different that's approach. such a good answer. That's such a good answer. I really love that because you you are all very disparate group of people. But I yes. I, I have sensed having spoken to so many librarians an overriding thing of a great, like a really keen sense of humour, like a dry <laughs> sense of humour. Yeah. You know, yes. Anything can go wrong and frequently does. So that's <laughs> really, that really struck me. You've got to have a good sense. You have to because you're working with the general public. It's so true. Yes. If you didn't have a sense of humour, you would be doomed. Yeah. Yes. And, and also the sense that, that librarians love books. Uh, sorry, of course librarians love books, but they love people as much, if not more than books. And that yeah. was what a librarian said to me. She said, you know, I do. I love people as much, if not more than books. We are people orientated because we're frontline workers. So we are dealing with people. So, yeah, it's not the sense that, oh, the book is everything. It's the people. We are serving people. It's very and true. We are servants of the public, aren't you? So you have to be, um, you know, I always feel like a, a librarian is like a partly a citizen vice bureau worker, a social worker, a confidant, a friend, an events planner. You're all, you're this huge sort of, you know, you, you do all this great swathe of humanity and you have the kind of emotional intellect, intellect and that kind of kaleidoscope of skills that enable you to deal with whoever comes through the door. So I always say this, I feel like a library is like a microcosm of society, isn't it? Which, in a sense, makes you humanitarians, if you look at it that way. It might sound like a job to some, but that's how I view it, for sure. I think our public librarians absolutely are just, they are brave, good, kind people who really care about their communities. And I have a slice of that in a different way in the elementary school, but it's, it is, it's a privilege. And it's... I mean, you get to watch people grow. I mentioned to you before we started recording that I love watching the kids grow year on year. And I think that public librarians have the same experience where you're developing relationships with your patrons. I mean, these are the people in your world. So yeah, and you have the privilege. I feel in some ways because you you get the the beginning, you get to shape, you get to try and connect. I mean, you in a way means you have a harder job because you know, as one school librarian said to me, she said, there's no such thing as a child that doesn't love reading, just a child who hasn't found the right book. Yeah. And I guess that's what motivates you, does it, all the time, to want to connect children with the authors that are going to help them fall in love with reading for the rest of their lives. Yes, absolutely. And I really want them to feel good among the books, that the library can be a place where they yeah. feel good. And, you know, to your point, when you were saying you know, earlier, school isn't easy for all people and so the idea that it can be a a really open easy space to be especially if the day is hard or you know that the library can be kind of a relief so yeah I love I think the library should be sanctuaries shouldn't they whether they're underground at Bethnal Green or whether they're overground at your school you know it should be as because that was what it was for me as a child it was a sanctuary safe space you know, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but walking through the doors and smelling that smell of polish and paper and kind of unique smell, I, I really felt calmed by it. And I, yes, people like cocooned in books. And I, I love that. And I would want everybody to feel, and, and, that, and that is what libraries do give so many people, isn't it? I think it is. Sanctuary space. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, Kate, this was a pleasure. 
Oh, thank you so much for the time. I enjoyed it. Oh, I will share all the things about your book so that everyone can enjoy the little wartime library. And we will stay strong that the Ravens have not left the tower. (laughs) Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at Julie Writes Words, or you can go to my website, juliewritewords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.